You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. And we are wrapping up 1 John, starting uh, chapter 5, verse 13 through the end. And it says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, and in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. All right. Good morning, church. Um, if you're new at church and are confused of how many Jameses there are, there are a lot of us. I'm the one that has this bald spot. The Bible says, like John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, this is James whom I've given this balding spot to. <laughs> this is the other James, the more handsome James over there that you heard last week. But I uh, serve as an elder and on staff uh, as well here at church, um, and it's delight Um as we come to the end of First John, we're closing up shop. Um, this is the end of our time, at least uh, together, of looking at what John has written. If you have questions about this text, I promise I'm going to uh, answer any questions. And this is obviously a text that might have a question um, in it. Um, so feel free to scan that code if it pops up there on the screen. But um, let me start by sharing a little bit um, of a story to get us going. Uh, A year ago, uh, my wife and I sent our oldest, Lucy, to kindergarten, so last academic year. Um, And if you've done it before, or perhaps looking at the prospect of that in the coming, like for me at least, that was super scary. It was super scary, and and probably more scary for the parent than the child, maybe. Um, But like sending your precious, emotional, fragile like super naive six-year-old into a building with bigger, older, not-so-naive kids, right? Like, what could go wrong? Good luck, kid. Have fun. But when parents drop off their kindergartner for that first time in front of the school building, what do parents do? No, they don't pop a bottle of champagne. Come on. But what do parents do? You see the parent like huddle up with their child on the sidewalk in front of the curb and they're offering a few reminders. They're saying some last words of really certainties for what is absolutely true. I know for Lucy, we we said, mom and dad love you. We say this often. We say you're beautiful and perfect in every way. 
I know we said, like, Dad will be right here in this spot when school is over to pick you up. I know we said, like, be kind to all your new classmates. Like, raise your hand. Remember your manners. I remember we said, ultimately, like, if you are afraid, remember God says that he's always with you. Or I, I think about college. A lot of us had this experience. Like, after the bags are brought into the dormitory and you are like, all right, parents, it's time for you to leave, right? But, like, before the parent leaves, like, usually they say something of some certainties for what is absolutely true. They may say something like, you, you've been preparing for this moment. Like, you are ready for it. You're going to do great. I'm just a phone call, a text away. Like, I'll be thinking and praying for you every day. Find friends who love Jesus. Like, don't forget to study. Like, remember why you're here. Or what about, you know, a child's wedding? As the guests, like, come in and before the service starts, there's just that quiet moment before things get going. And the parent might turn to the child and offer, again, some certainties for what is absolutely true by saying, perhaps, like, I'm so proud of you. So proud of who you're becoming. No matter what happens in the days ahead, like, mom and dad are always going to be here for you. And keep God at the center of your marriage. Like, that's what matters. Nothing else matters. But in every one of these situations, and we could probably think of some more, like, prior to the parent departing from their child, their parent, the parent wants to send their child off with something, with knowing something, of knowing the certainties for what is absolutely, without any doubt, true. That, that the parent will come back for them, that you love them, that you're proud of them, that you're praying for them, that you'll be there for them. Certainties for what is absolutely true. And if you're not there yet in 1 John chapter 5, encourage you to turn there or turn on your phone. But 1 John chapter 5, and if you'd like to look at it and you didn't bring a Bible, there's some in the back. I encourage you to have eyeballs on what we're talking about. But 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 21. And we have here really John's final words. His final words to an ancient church that we've been learning have really been undercut by false teachers marred by theological uh, drift and division. And we know that John is this apostolic, like elderly father nearing the end of his life. And so before parting ways with his, in some sense, children, John concludes this letter by offering a few certainties. Things he's already written about in this letter. There's nothing new here, but it's a final reminder one more time of the certainties for what is absolutely true. That though we may live in a world flooded with different ideas, the Christian lives with absolutes. That though we live in a world filled by uncertainties of what's to come, the Christian lives fixed on certainty. That though we live in a world manipulated by lies and selfish ambition, the Christian lives by truth. And this has been John's theme throughout the letter, that the Christian can know something. That the Christian can know something, can be assured of something. And it's fitting that John concludes his letter in this way. And here's what we're saying today, that we can know as Christians, we can know what's true. And that what's true gives us assurance to live faithful lives for God right now. 
we can know what's true. And what's true gives us assurance to live faithful lives for God right now. Let's ask God for his help. Father, we thank you for these precious final words from John. And Lord, we pray that we would hear you, that your word would come alive to our hearts and that our hearts would hear you in these words. Lord, we want to be changed and made more like you to be fixated on this assurance that you have given us. In your name we pray, amen. Well, even as you scan or or heard Ben read through it, seven times in these eight verses, John says, I want you to know, I want you to know, I want you to know, seven times. Two of which emerged last week when James was up here, and three that I want us to see for the first time today. But we're going to backpedal a little bit to be able to go forward. And so in review, we saw this last week, James preached well on this, that number one, that five things Christians can know. One is that we have eternal life. That's the first thing that John wants this church and us to know. Verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know. You may know what? He says that you have eternal life life. Meaning we we don't have to guess, we don't have to doubt, we don't have to achieve. But the certainty of our eternal life comes not from within ourselves, but upon Jesus. The cross and the empty tomb. Which means that this world, this present life that we live in, it's not our final destination, is it? We may live with eyes fixated not by what we see, here, but by what God speaks of, of the hope that we have there in eternity. And that really informs these other things that we can know. Secondly, too, the Christian can know that God hears and answers our prayers. That God hears and answers our prayers. And again, we saw this last week, verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, toward God. That if we ask anything according to God's will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. So John is simply saying that whatever we ask according to God's will, we know God hears and God answers. That until we possess the certainty of this future eternal glory, Christians should know that they have this direct line of access to the throne room of God. Meaning me, little old James Davenport of the village of McFarland, Wisconsin, has an audience with the king of glory, the maker of heavens and earth. And so do you, Christian. And this is where we stopped last week. But John continues in our text to really, I believe, expand upon this certainty and illustrating the unbelievable power at the Christian's disposal in living out this certainty in everyday life. Verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, And God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin, or there is sin, that leads to death. 
I do not say that one should pray for that. Sometimes when your strategy is to preach the Bible verse by verse, you have encouraging passages like God's love to preach on. And sometimes you have this. John certainly grabs our attention, right? I think all of our eyeballs are on this last part. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. And I don't know about you, but two immediate questions come to my mind. Like, all right, what is that sin? Because I don't want to do it. And why does John say we shouldn't pray for it? Doesn't that seem contrary to what we know that we should do as Christians? You know, like, teaching the Bible sometimes is like driving a bus full of kids in which there's a huge car wreck or accident on the side of the road. And you don't want the kids to freak out by, as a driver of what they're going to see, but there's really nothing you can do to distract them from seeing what they're going to see. Their eyeballs are going to be smushed against the glass, observing everything, right? As John speaks to this sin that leads to death, there's nothing I can do to distract you from that. He says this, there's sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. And so in a lot of ways, before we can move on, we just have to talk about it. We have to talk about the car wreck with the kids. We have to talk about the sin that leads to death before I think we can really see perhaps the bigger point that John is perhaps making here. So many interpretations, as you can imagine, have been offered in trying to understand what is John talking about, about a sin that leads to death. Some have said that John refers to sins so serious, a sin so serious that it could never be forgiven. In some sense that there's a mortal sin. However, the Bible forcefully refutes this interpretation by expressing that the grace of Jesus is available to all who repent. Even the murderer or the child abuser. There's grace for our sin. So we can reject this interpretation. Others would say John is referring to Christians, Christians whom God has judged not with eternal death, but physical death. And they would point to examples like Ananias and Sapphira in Acts, who God struck dead on the spot as a result of their sin. Or they would point to the Corinthian church when Paul wrote that some had fallen ill and even death for violation of the Lord's table, of a sin they committed at the Lord's table. And I, and I honestly find this one pretty compelling. The trouble in this interpretation, though, is that it has to be constrained in the consistency of how you would render death and life. The consistency of needing it to be physical or eternal. And I think there's some issue there that would be hard to deal with. Others would argue that John had in mind apostates, meaning ones who profess Christ but now deny Christ. And I think one of the troubles of this view might be that John already taught in verse 4 of chapter 5, that those truly born of God would never go down this pathway. They would never renounce their faith if you've been born of God, he says in verse 4 of chapter 5. And, and others would say John's referring to the blasphemy of the Spirit. And perhaps you remember Jesus in the Gospels spoke of this, such as in Matthew chapter 12. He says, therefore, this is Jesus' words, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. 
And, and I think a trouble perhaps with this interpretation is that John does not speak of a sin that cannot be forgiven, as Jesus does, but of a sin that, if continuing in it, will lead to death. So which interpretation is it? This is a difficult text in the Bible, if not one of the hardest to understand. And whenever we come to a difficult spot in our Bibles, we have to allow the text or the context of the text to really be our constraints or our guidelines, our strategy for how we seek understanding. And so for us in 1 John, I think there's several clues that might help us understand what John is speaking to when he says a sin that leads to death. First, consider why John wrote this letter. Consider why John wrote this letter. He says in verse 26 of chapter 2, he says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. We know this, right? We've learned that in this ancient church at this time, there's false teachers actively within their ranks who are trying to spread false doctrine about Christ, about how they are to live. We know that to be true. That's the first clue. Second, I think we need to consider how John qualifies who is doing what sort of sinning in our passage. There's really two sins in question, isn't there? There's a sin that does not lead to death, and there's a sin that does lead to death. Look at verse 16. The one who commits a sin that does not lead to death, how does Paul or John qualify who that is? It says, if anyone sees his brother, his brother, committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall um, ask God. And brother, we know, is really a generic word that would speak to the Christian community, meaning those within the church. So in our context, we would probably say, if anyone sees a city group member, somebody a part of our church, committing a sin, not leading to death, pray for them. But notice how John qualifies the one who's, who's the sin that leads to death. The sin that leads to death. How does John qualify that at the end of verse 16? What's the qualifier? Well, there isn't one, is there? It simply just reads, there is sin that leads to death. That might be a Christian. It might not. We don't know. Third, consider the substance of John's writing. What have we been learning and hearing from John? What does John want this church to know? Well, he wants them to be assured of eternal life, right? He wants them to have assurance of eternal life. And so continually throughout this letter, John weaves together three really tests or ways that we can be assured of eternal life with God. He says, one, you need to have right doctrine. You need to Believe who Jesus says he is, the Son of God, the God-man, the Savior of our sins. You need to have right doctrine. Secondly, he says over and over, you need to have obedience to the commands of God. Right doctrine, right obedience. And also thirdly, over and over, he says you need to have love for one another, especially those within the church. Right doctrine, obedience, and love. So what is the sin that leads to death? As I think about it, I, I think John's been saying it throughout his entire letter, perhaps leading up to this moment of him actually expressing it, that the sin that leads to death is the person who deliberately rejects Jesus as the God-man, the Savior of our sins. The sin that leads to death 
is perhaps the person who deliberately refuses to obey the commands of God. But the sin that leads to death is the person who deliberately denies love to one another. All three of these things we've seen demonstrated by the false teachers in this context. How are we doing? Are you with me? Let's look at this from a different angle. I think this will be helpful. As we know, John writes in really stark contrast, which sometimes I find unhelpful, but I think it's helpful. But he's extremely black and white. Like, either you love God or you love the world. What about the middle, right? Love God, love the world. At youth group tonight, Emery, we're playing dodgeball, right? And we're, we're moving all the couches. Couches are like, they're part of the game, right? This is an intense game of dodgeball. We've never played dodgeball inside, but we're doing it. And I can't wait. For those of you who don't know how to play dodgeball, you chuck a ball at each other as hard as you can, right? And try to get each other out. But in the game of dodgeball, there's a dividing line. One team is on one side, the other team is on the other side. And theoretically, you work together as a team to eliminate all the other players on the opposing side. But the general rule is you can't cross over that line, right? But over the course of the game, there's just times where unintentionally you might get somebody out. Emery, don't be on my team because I do this a lot. Like, oh, you get that ball, I'll cover for you, right? I'll cover for you, you get that ball, I'll make sure nothing happens, and then, like, you miss, misfire, and they get smoked and they're out, right? Like, it just happens that unintentionally you may cause one of your teammates to get out in the game of dodgeball. However, it's an entirely different scenario if one of your teammates just crosses over the dividing line and deliberately and purposely joins the enemy, the opposing team, and says, I'm on this team. What is the sin that leads to death? It's the person who very deliberately has crossed the dividing line to join the enemy, to join Satan to very purposefully and intentionally inflict harm on the people and the purpose of God. See, I find this all about allegiance. About allegiance. Are you with Jesus or are you with the world? Which is to say that no one might, might stumble into this sin as if by accident. It's not something that happens, I don't believe, in a singular moment. These false teachers, I don't think, you know, who are undercutting the doctrine of the church, I don't think they just like woke up one morning like, I have an idea. This is what I'm going to do. I think it was a journey, a process that over time their hearts became hardened to the things of God. So let's not be distracted by this car wreck and asking, is it me? Have I committed the sin that leads to death? Let's move past that to see what I think John wants you to see in this passage. And I think there's two things. One, which he's been saying throughout this entire letter, is that unrepentant sin today will lead you into deeper and greater sin tomorrow. That unrepentant sin today will lead you into deeper and greater sin tomorrow. Don't allow your heart to be hardened. Do business with God. Hold on to the precious promise that John expressed in the opening 
words of his letter that we read already, that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is a precious promise from God. Unrepentant sin, I think John is saying, will lead you into deeper and greater sorrow tomorrow. But secondly, an illustration of the certainty that we have, I think what John is saying, that as a Christian, our duty, our responsibility, is to pray for one another when there's struggles of sin in one of y'all's lives. Our lives. That when we see a fellow brother or sister stuck in sin, we don't gossip about it. We cry out to God for them. Lest anyone become hardened by the deceitfulness of their sin. This is what John is saying. Verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing sin, not leading to death, which I think is any sin, he shall ask, he shall cry out to God, and God will give him life. God will give him life. God will give her life. You see, this isn't conjecture or hypothesis, but as Christians, we pray boldly, we pray faithfully, because we have a certainty that we know that as we pray according to God's will, which is for our brothers and sisters to persevere in our faith, to overcome sin, that God will hear our prayer and that God will answer our prayer. Are you with me? John is illustrating the unbelievable power the Christian possesses in this certainty that when we pray according to God's will, God hears, God answers, God moves. Amen. That is good news. Some of you might be wondering, well, how do I pray according to God's will? And I simply say, just open up the Bible. Open up to the Psalms and just pray God's truth, not only into your life, but into the life of your spouse, your roommate, your neighbor, your co-worker. When we pray according to the will of God, God hears and answers. So what does the Christian know? We've said two things. We have eternal life. We have prayers heard and answered. And thirdly, we will overcome evil. We will overcome evil. Verse 18, John says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We've talked about this in, in past weeks, but John is not saying that Christians will not sin, because that would contradict what he's already said, that if we say we have no sin, we are a liar, and the truth is not in us. So, so what does John mean? I, I think it's, he's just saying that we're, Christians cannot remain stuck in sin. We can't be in some perpetual, continual state of unrepentant sin. It's incompatible. Why? Well, he's telling us the reason why in verse 18. He says, uh, he, meaning Jesus, he who was born of God, does what? Protects the believer. Jesus protects the believer. Meaning, in Jesus, we will triumph we will have victory in our lives. It doesn't mean that Christians are immune from sin or suffering or trials or temptation. It's very clear in Scripture. Peter reminds us that Satan is prowling about like a roaring lion seeking to devour and destroy. That while we live in this broken yet beautiful world, there will be pain and tears and 
and death. But yet the certainty is this. We sung about it in that one song. The certainty is this, that evil has been overcome, not by us, but by Jesus. And in Jesus, in Jesus, in Jesus is our protection and our victory. History buffs, you can check me on this. I don't see Nick Zeal, so I think I'm safe in here today. But D-Day took place back on June 6, 1944. And as I think most of us know, it's the day, right, that the Allies invaded Normandy and began liberating Europe from Nazi control. And I learned this this week, that 7,000 ships on that day carried 200,000 soldiers to France, uh, and they landed on the beach and uh, began that invasion. And it was really that day that began this military buildup and invasion that Germany would never be able to stop as 900,000, 900,000 more soldiers came in to, uh, onto those beaches. In some sense, it was only a matter of time before the Allies were going to win this war as this invasion became successful. Yet, Victory Day, Victory Day, the day Germany surrendered and the war was over, took place 11 months later on May 8, 1945. I wasn't alive, but from what I've read, a lot of people back in the States carried their perspective following, not Victory Day, but D-Day, that the war was over. That it was just a matter of time before Germany was going to ultimately have to surrender. But that was not the reality of the soldiers on the ground. They were still dodging bullets and bombs. They were bleeding and wounded. Many were still dying. There were many harrowing days of war to be endured for the soldiers on the ground. You see, Christian, we live in this in-between. We live in this in-between. But John is saying, don't let the bullets, don't let the bombs confuse you or fool you. Victory is ours. Jesus is our protection. The battle has been won. And how will we overcome? And this is key. It's essential to the Christian faith. How will we overcome? Well, John says it's as we come to God in faith and repentance. Accepting his perfect life as our way to overcome all sin in our life. Again, where there's sin in our lives, we repent. Repentance is this wonderful gift and mercy God has given to us that we might have new life, that there might be restoration in relationship. And if you have kids this morning, they're learning about repentance today as well. But repentance and faith means we don't have to pretend. We don't have to hide. We don't have to have shame because victory is ours. Our debt is no more. Jesus paid it all. Fourthly, John says the Christian can know that we belong to God. We can know that we belong to God. Verse 19. John says, we know. What do we know? That we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And notice John's contrast here. Who is the world 
in. Who is the world in? The power of the evil one, right? But who is the believer, the Christian in? John says they are in God. They're from God. And John's point is that everybody is in someone. Either you belong to the world or you belong to God. He's saying there's no third category. You fall in one of these categories. Either you belong to God or you belong to the world. Toy Story remains one of my favorite movies. It has long staying power in my mind. I suggest it every movie night. And we've watched it like five times. I'm not bitter though. But in Toy Story 2, there is a scene where Woody, who's a toy, frantically searches for his hat so that he won't be left behind by Andy, who's the boy, to cowboy camp. So here's this little cowboy toy looking for his hat because he wants to go to cowboy camp with his boy Andy. And Bo Peep, who's a fellow toy, tells Woody, hey, just look under your boot. And Woody says, I wish I could do his voice. Woody says, don't be silly. Like my hat is not under my boot. But what does Bo Peep do? She says, no, just look under your foot. And so Woody lifts up his foot. See, there's nothing under my foot. There's no hat. Just the word Andy. And Bo Peep just says, uh-huh. And the boy who wrote that would take you to camp with or without your hat. See, Woody's identity was never defined by the hat he did or did not wear. Woody's identity was defined by who he belonged to. And he belonged to Andy. Christian, you belong to God. You belong to God. You don't belong, Christian, to the world. You've been born into God's family. You are his child and nothing changes that nothing can take away from it no no power of the world is great enough to prevail against that reality you are secure for you are god's possession so if you are a child of god and not of the world then we should listen to what john's already written in this book right that we should not thirst and love for the things of the world because those will pass away but we thirst and love for the things of God, for that will last for eternity. Lastly, John says we can know one more thing. That the Christian can know that we possess truth. Verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is true. He is true. That missed the article. He is the true God and eternal life. John's final words really mirror his beginning words, if you look back at chapter 1. His first words of this book, he was saying, we know what's true. We, meaning the disciples, the apostles, know what's true because we were with him who is true, Jesus, the son of God. He's saying, we, we heard Jesus. We, we talked with Jesus. We ate with Jesus. I gave Jesus a hug. We were a witness to the living, breathing giver of eternal life. 
Imagine we're all going to a dinner party. And when I come to a dinner party, I like to come in with a hot take. Something controversial, just to stir up that conversation. And I could see myself saying something like this. Just top of my head. You know, Ross, we didn't actually land on the moon. Just a conspiracy. Just a conspiracy. And we would begin dialoguing on it, trying to stir others into this crazy notion, right? I can see myself doing it because I've done it before. But say at that dinner party, unknowing to me is Neil Armstrong. I come in, I, I'm going to stir this up. I got some really cool things to say. Watch this special. I don't remember the special, but must have watched it. I got some really cool stuff to say. And I'm just like unloading. Me and Ross are going back and forth. We're getting people sucked into this thing. All Neil is going to do, he's going to sit, sit down calmly, his drink of water or drink whatever. He's going to say, that moon landing was successful. I walked on the moon. I was there. I was the guy who walked on the moon. You see, in some ways, John is like Neil Armstrong. He's, John's saying, I know what's true, for I was with him who is the truth. I was right there by him. When you know Jesus, you know what's true, for he is the source of truth. And perhaps what I thought when I first read this, a disconnected way, John signs off in verse 21. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And the more I've reflected on this, I don't think it's disconnected at all. I think it's directly connected. You see, John's telling us to guard ourselves from idols because John is implying that we have something of infinite value. He's telling us that we have something valuable the enemy is trying to steal. The great Bible teacher Spurgeon illustrated it in this way. That suppose there's a box in my house. It just shows up one day. As often now, it really does. Like Amazon just drops boxes off all the time, right? But there's this box that comes into my house. I don't know what's inside of it, which is also usually true. <laughs> but as a result, I'm not going to be too careful with the fate of that box. I certainly am not going to guard it from my children who will obviously just turn it into a, you know, a, a canoe on a raging river or a rocket ship going to the moon. Like, I'm not going to guard it from my kids. Like, have fun with that box. But, but say I knew where that box came from and that within that box it contained rare and valuable treasures. Then, of course, 100%, I am going to guard that box. Like, sorry, kids, this is for dad. That's what John is saying. That's what John is saying. That because Jesus came to earth, we've been given this treasure, this truth, this understanding, this knowledge, this gift of eternal life. Therefore, keep on guard. Keep on guard. Don't let the enemy steal it. 
Don't refashion Jesus into an image of your own selfish ambition or dream. Keep on guard. Don't allow anything apart from Jesus and his words and what he says to influence you. Keep on guard. Don't get sucked into a shrine of self-pleasure or personal comfort, but keep on guard. Keep to the mission. Don't doctrinally drift and reshape Jesus into a more culturally relevant being. Keep on guard. John concludes this letter by saying, I think, five things the Christian can know. The Christian can know that we have eternal life. That we have prayers heard and answered. We will overcome all evil. We belong to God and we possess truth. When we know what's true, it's that truth that gives us the assurance to live faithful lives for God right now. And I'll be honest, it's, it's odd to have final say in how we close our time in 1 John. Here's my take. John wrote to a church in trouble. And he reminded these troubled Christians of their most surest assurance. And so fine church, come what may. Faith flourishing, faith failing. Jesus fails us not. He is our greatest treasure. So every one of us has a role in this. Every one of us Let us continue to do whatever it takes in helping one another hold on to that assurance. To help one another keep guard against drifting or um, seeing the enemy steal this treasure. It takes every one of us. Let's do that. Continue to do that together to keep guard of our greatest treasure that we might have assurance. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for John and his life and these words. Thank you how you have used his words to speak into our lives. Lord, we thank you. We praise you that you are our greatest treasure. Lord, we don't deserve it. We have never earned it. And I pray for anyone here this morning that doesn't know you, Jesus, as their Savior that you would speak to them right now in the quietness of this moment. Lord, would you make them alive to the things of you. May they understand that your grace is for them. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would do that. Lord, I pray for those of us here who have been Christians, whether for 10 minutes, or 10 years, or 10 decades, that we would hold on to this assurance, that we would keep this truth, that we would not wander or drift, that we would hold on to this assurance. We pray that by the power of your word and the power of your spirit, Jesus' name, amen. We're going to go to the Lord's table, but we'll see. Reading these questions here. First question is just, does death in this context mean you're closed off from eternal life? No more resurrection. Rejecting Jesus closes the door to heaven. I think think John has made it clear throughout his letter that as we we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. 
And so I think John is alluding to in that passage, the sin that leads to death, that if this continues to be your direction, that will be your destination. Um, but I, I, I think I think there's grace and forgiveness as we come to God. Um, I, I don't I don't see that as like a final, like in that moment, if we're applying it right to the false teachers. I think there's still room for them to repent. Uh, I think God makes that clear throughout Scripture as you come to him in repentance. Um, there's a lot of blurring of lines as we think about kind of those distinctions of blasphemy of the Spirit, apostate, um, that all those verses have to be held in context. Um, and I don't know if it's really helpful to say this is First John's category, if this is an apostate or a blasphemy of the Spirit. I think we just take it in the context of the letter that John says, don't do these three things. Don't reject Jesus, don't disobey God's commands, and don't not love others. Do those things, and there's an assurance of eternal life. There's another question here. We can, we can turn that on to Slack. 